Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Everything's running smoothly. Yo, yo, yo! Yo! What is going on? My name's Hartzell. And this right here, it's your KC Morning Show, baby! Word. Happy Tuesday, Kansas City. KC Morning Hoes. You know what we do on Tuesdays. Myself and Professor Harvey K, Professor Emeritus over at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. We take back America, my friends. And today, we got an emergency episode. Shout out to Professor Harvey K's better half, Miss Lorna K. She brought this to our attention and we got to talk about it. A Supreme Court case happening right now. The separation of church and state is on the line. And what I love about having Harvey on the show is that we get a chance to establish the context to all this stuff. So as all the nonsense and ridiculousness is happening in Jeff City, in D.C., insert your local state house, we can take this thing all the way back and show that the promise of America was always rooted in radical change, not reactionary nonsense like trampling all over the Constitution, the intent of the Constitution. Professor Harvey K. and myself, we break all of that down, my friends. Do me a solid KC, rate, review, subscribe, do that thing you do. Tell your friends about us, we got a good thing. Two-time, best local podcast kind of good thing. I love you, Kansas City, you're always way too good to me, too good to this show, but I'm gonna ask you to keep doing that. Please and thank you. Up next, we take back America. My name's Hartzell, we'll see ya in the morning. Bye. I am black, January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K., my brother, he is the Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Every week on your KC Morning Show, we take back America. And today, we have an assist. An assist by one Lorna K., who brought to our attention, honestly, this emergency episode professor harvey k that's the reason why we do this show not just to look back and stew and hoop and holler we are here to take these ideas these revolutionary radical ideas and we propel them into the future and we arm ourselves with ways to keep the fight going am i right i'm preaching professor k let's preach absolutely today in fact i'm almost i would almost call it not so much taking back America as holding on to America, because what we've got is a case before the Supreme Court that could literally jeopardize 
because generations of struggle to maintain the separation of church and state, which goes all the way back, actually goes all the way back to the revolution, even before the constitution. And then it was built into the constitution by way of the first amendment in that very first, is that word clause, the very first line of the first amendment. And though the words separation of church and state do not exist, as we'll point out, Jefferson made it clear as president that that first freedom of the four freedoms of the First Amendment was basically a declaration of the separation of church and state. And that was fundamental in the making of America. And I want to make it clear to everyone that we sometimes undervalue the revolutionary character of the American Revolution. We know how it failed to bring an immediate end to slavery. It did launch in many ways the end of slavery in the North, which took some years, but it launched that process. In the South, of course, the expectation was that it would fade. It did not fade. It grew stronger and stronger. And there was the threat in the 1850s that slavery might literally just control the entire nation. Fortunately, we were saved from all of that by the Civil War, which I know sounds terrible, but that's what it took. And we also know how women were essentially marginalized in the course of the revolution and the creation of the Constitution. But having said that, it was the makings of a democratic republic. And at the heart of that was a very revolutionary act, which I'll link back to Thomas Paine, but I just want to point out to people, I'm repeating myself, I know, but I drive this home strongly enough, the separation of church and state. So maybe you could just read that First Amendment again, Hartzell. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Yeah, now I think we take for granted that somehow America was born with those freedoms intact already. It's not the case. The Bill of Rights and that First Amendment, that most important First Amendment, was really aspirational because it was the case that in the course of colonial history and even after the revolution itself, there were still established churches in a good number of the states. So for example, in New England, the Congregational Church essentially ruled the cultural order of Massachusetts and Connecticut. Talk about irony, given the fact that today, it's often assumed that it's the Baptists who are the most eager to break down that wall of separation. It's the Baptists and Presbyterians and indeed Methodists too, who are fewer in number. It's the case that they were determined to bring an end to these established churches, that they should be able to exercise freely their understanding of how to worship God. And I want to be clear about it. It's the case that it wasn't that you had to be a Congregationalist in Massachusetts or Connecticut. It's that you had to pay a tithe to those churches, even if you were not a member of the Congregational Church, okay? And let me also make it clear, the Congregationalists themselves had literally come to New England to escape the Church of England. And they were always worried that the King of England might impose some kind of bishop onto the colonies or bishops on the respective colonies. Now, that's in the North. If you go to the South, Virginia, most of all, basically had an established church, the, the Anglican Church, today called the Episcopal Church. It's not established any longer. And the foremost figures in Virginia were recognized Anglicans. Now, I can't tell you that they were truly Anglicans in their faith. I mean, not only Jefferson, but Washington, too, was a deist. 
like Thomas Paine was a deist. That meant that they did believe in God, but they did not believe in the Trinity, which was so fundamental to Christianity. And in fact, the movement, the movement to disestablish churches in New England actually began in Virginia. John Leland, I believe, was the leading Baptist of the day who pursued that struggle. So you had Madison, you had Jefferson, and Mason, who really were intent upon creating certain rights. And Leland himself was of the Baptist who was pursuing this, if you like, separation of church and state. So the colonies witnessed this, the new American Republican witnessed this. And when the Constitution was written, it didn't include the Bill of Rights, but two years later, it had the Bill of Rights. And the First Amendment really was the amendment that declares not only freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom of assembly, it also included, first and foremost notice, freedom of worship, freedom of religion. Think about this. The four freedoms of the First Amendment are that personal freedom of conscience, the freedom of speech, then the freedom of press, and the freedom of assembly with the right of petition. Think about that. It goes from the person, the person speaking, the person communicating over distances and able to read others at a distance, and then finally, if necessary, assembly, assembling in order to protest and offer a petition for a redress of grievances. And also want to make it clear, it isn't like an add-on to the struggle. From the very beginning, I'm going to be even blunter, if there had not been the argument for separation of church and state, even before the revolution, or I should say even before the rebellion became a revolution, there probably would not have been a revolution, or in any case, it would not have been successful. And I'll explain what I mean by that. And of course, once again, I introduce the figure of Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine, who grew up in a household back in England where his father was a Quaker, his mother was an Anglican. He was well aware of religious oppression of a sort that occurred in England. And in fact, his father was basically shunned by his fellow Quakers when he married Paine's mother, the Anglican. And similarly, you can imagine what the Anglican folk thought of Paine's father having been a Quaker and in many ways remained a Quaker in spirit. And I'll also point out that Paine himself was very well educated in the Bible and knew it inside and out, could quote it at will. But as he grew up, he realized that the Bible couldn't be true, that it wasn't the word of God, it was the word of men who had authored it. And he became an ardent, a militant deist. But that's not the point here. The point is that when he came to America, he was incredibly impressed. He was literally moved to think of America as this almost paradise, except for the slavery. Okay. And he challenged Americans. But the other thing was, is that what really did impress him was the diversity of people who he encountered, who he was amongst in Philadelphia when he arrived in late 1774. People from all over Europe, not to mention Native Americans, not to mention African Americans. He was really overwhelmed. But the other thing was, and I think this was equally powerful, was how impressed he was by the diversity of faiths in Philadelphia and how they all essentially got along. This was unbelievable to him, given what he knew as he was growing up. So Payne, when he set himself to writing the first great pamphlet, to my mind, the, the launching ground of not only the American Revolution, but also the modern age. I mean, I go all out for pain. The fact is that when he wrote of the imperative of separating, that Americans needed to separate from the British Empire, separate from the king, separate from, if you like, the Church of England, or indeed the cultural domination of Britain over the colonies, what he was doing is he lays out in there a vision of what an American constitution might include. And he says, in addition to this democratic model that he offers, that there should be essentially a Bill of Rights. Certain freedoms should be guaranteed. He actually says, should guarantee people their property, 
And it should guarantee people freedom of religion, freedom of conscience. And he says it, I believe, in different words, maybe up to five times in common sense, which is only a pamphlet of 50 pages when it came out. He says, I fully and conscientiously believe that it is the will of the Almighty that there should be a diversity of religious opinions among us. In other words, he actually believed that the diversity of religions that he was witnessing and experiencing was probably divinely ordained itself, that diversity. That made America, America in some way. And then he set out to challenge the established orders in congregational New England and, you know, the Anglican-dominated South. And he then moved bluntly about separating church and state. He said, as to religion, I hold it to be the indispensable duty of government to protect all conscientious professors thereof. And I know of no other business which government has to do therewith. In other words, the only role for government in religion is to make sure everyone gets to practice it as they please, or perhaps not at all. I could hear one of our audience saying, wait, that's Thomas Paine's argument. Does that necessarily mean Americans somehow embrace that argument? Well, yes. Okay, let me explain this. For example, many colonists, North and South, and I'll get to Virginia especially in a moment, actually heard that and believed that it might be worth turning the rebellion into a revolution. Because if they themselves were not of the dominant church, the established church in their colonies, respective colonies, colonies, then that would mean that if the revolution succeeds, they would have true religious freedom and they wouldn't have to be taxed by anyone to help cover the expenses of the Anglican church. And I can go further than that and tell you specifically, in Virginia, the fear was great amongst ordinary farmers in certain counties where there were growing numbers of Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists who really chafed you might say, at the fact that it was an Anglican colony. And there was really a fear that at some point the king to establish British domination all the more effectively might impose a bishop on Virginia. By the way, they were very hesitant about fighting in in an American war of independence because they didn't want to necessarily establish an Anglican Virginia separate from Britain altogether, give up one master for an American-based Church of England. So when they read Thomas Paine, they really were enthused. So Paine makes that argument, and it really does become a fundamental aspect of the American Revolution. Now, I want to point out, it is not in the Declaration of Independence, but it is in the far more, if you like, legalistic text of the Constitution by way of the Bill of Rights. And let me make it also clear, it was also indicated in the Constitution even before, even before the Bill of Rights, because when they lay out the requirements for holding office, they do specify no, no religious oaths, no religious requirements, no religious obligations. Or as my friend, the now late Isaac Kramnik, who was a great professor of government and political theory at Cornell University, as he wrote with his friend R. Lawrence Moore in the book, The Godless Constitution, the point is that the Constitution was godless. Payne himself sort of looked forward to that possibility. In common sense, when he's basically declaring the imperative of independence and literally creating a democratic republic, he anticipates this question. But where is the king of America? Meaning, aren't people going to ask, where's the king in your model of a free and independent America? So Payne says in the text, I'll tell you, friend, he reigns above and doth not make havoc of mankind like the royal brute 
of Great Britain. And then Payne didn't pause a moment. He projected an American Independence Day filled with splendid democratic ritual. Why don't you read that paragraph? It's really good, Hartzell. Let a day be solemnly set apart for proclaiming the charter. Let it be brought forth, placed on the divine law, the word of God. Let a crown be placed thereon, by which the world may know that so far as we approve of monarchy, that in America the law is king. But least any ill should afterwards arise. Let the crown at the conclusion of the ceremony be demolished and scattered among the people whose right it is. Now, of course, what Payne is doing is he's acknowledging that Americans are essentially religious. But then he's saying the point is that with American independence and the creation of the charter, which his word for a constitution, then it's the law that's king in America. Or as Kramnik and Moore write in their book, The Godless Constitution, the constitution is godless and the law is king. It wasn't automatically enforced in the states because at the outset, the Bill of Rights was presumed to only operate at the federal level, federal law. So there were states that continued to have established churches. And I believe it's not until the 1820s, maybe as late as 1831, that in Massachusetts first and then Connecticut, there is that disestablishment of churches, the congregational church in those cases. And along the way, we've seen the struggle for how to interpret the First Amendment to fit the historical changes taking place in America, obviously. And of course, the greatest moment in that struggle may well have been that in the 1960s, the court decided that, that no longer would there be school prayer. Now, there has now come before the Supreme Court a case. I believe it's called Carson versus, let me get the exact name, Carson versus Macon from Maine. What it involves is that Baptist family families are demanding, have demanded that they should be allowed to use state dollars to underwrite their children attending the Bangor Christian schools. Let's be clear about what that means. There was already a case, Espinosa, I believe it was, that allowed for federal dollars to go into certain kinds of religious institutions for non-religious activities, secular activities. The problem here is, is that the Bangor Christian schools, for a start, do not, as public schools do, hire gay teachers, and they will not tolerate gay students. Let's be clear about that. But it's also the case that to attend, you are subject to religious instruction. It's fundamental, which means that even if somehow or other they say, well, we can tolerate, which they haven't, we can tolerate gays in, in our building, whatever it might be, the fact is their religious instruction will be specifically anti-gay, and that means students and obviously teachers alike. So they lost their case at the first round, but they took it further and went before the Supreme Court. The danger right now is that the current court and its makeup, I can't tell you how many, but quite a few of the sitting justices probably went to religious schools. Chief Justice Roberts' son attends, attended, I guess, a school in which the Judeo-Christian tradition was at the heart of the school. And there was annual, as I understand it, compulsory chapel attendance. It may have been of a sort of non-denominational sort, but it was the case that chapel attendance was part of the instruction. And so what they're saying is because there aren't enough high schools in the state, that is the reason they believe that they can give state dollars to these essentially parochial schools and institutions. Yeah. And just as we fear the end of freedom of choice, the Roe v. Wade decision, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and the fact that in many a state you will see it's already happening, the Texas law that was being argued, and Arkansas has moved to do similar, just as it's the case, you will see Republican-dominated states 
Republican legislatures passing laws that will severely restrict, if not outlaw, a woman's right to choose to secure an abortion. And just so everyone knows, Missouri is one of those states actively trying to do that. Yeah. Even though Wisconsin would not have historically been an obvious case for it, I have little little doubt that Republican-dominated legislature will do so. They're, they're moving right now to pass laws which are literally taking us back to a different age. And... Uh, having to do with rights of voters and workers and women, and I could go on and on and on. This would be literally so large a hole in the wall of separation between church and state that, again, conservative-dominated legislatures around the country will just ram through laws enabling religious schools to receive direct payments from the state on some basis of choice. So we're in an emergency moment, you might say. You know, it's funny, ironic. I don't mean funny as in, let's all have a laugh. I mean, in an ironic way, that conservatives who have for years literally claimed that they speak on behalf of the founders, the founders' intentions, that we're now going to see the founders' intentions, if there ever was such a thing to begin with, because they were a fairly diverse lot. But if it is the case, as they understood it, they are now going to be blunt about it all over the founders' intentions. And that's why what we're doing right now is so important. We have the answers. It doesn't mean there was some kind of, was it textualist that goes only by the words that are said on the paper. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is what those words are, are statements of intent. And intent always meant a separation of church and state. Rooted in the American Revolution, articulated originally by Thomas Paine in the pamphlet Common Sense, and then made the law of the land in the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which, as I said before, already indicated the desire to separate church and state by way of having no religious oaths and no religious tests required for office holding period. And what are people going to say? Well, what are they going to do now? Do you say we just get rid of high schools altogether? No, the answer is investing in your community. Build more high schools. That's the choice of it all. We shouldn't hesitate to note that my comrade here, my brother Hartzell, did indeed attend a parochial school for a period of time. My Lutheran-educated grade school and middle school, which I learned and appreciate to this day, I can't on it but it was essentially propaganda for jerry falwell we went to chapel every week and we were part of the lutheran missouri synod the lutherans are usually fairly liberal but not the missouri synod and if anyone's in their car knows what i'm talking about you know what i'm talking about every church the pamphlet had some liberty university nonsense for the longest time women could not be pastors i mean i love the people i met in that school and the education i got is fundamental to who I am right now. But state dollars should not go into me attending required chapel every Wednesday, which is what we did every Wednesday. Yeah, and just for people to understand, I believe there are three main synods in the Lutheran Church. The Missouri, the Wisconsin. The Wisconsin is, I believe, equally conservative, not as large as the Missouri Synod, I understand. And then, of course, there are the evangelical Lutherans who are considered to be the liberal synod among Lutherans. Now, I want to point out a historical point. I believe it was 1931 in the Catholic magazine. It might have been forgetting the title of it, it might have been Commonweal. They actually, for the first time ever, a Christian magazine kind of honored or celebrated or complimented Thomas Paine for his call for separation of church and state. Because Catholics, Catholics were a minority faith in this country. And this magazine made it clear that the standing of the Catholic church as free and independent of any state interference was rooted, they said, in Thomas Paine's common sense. This has been important forever in American history, 
this aspirational separation of church and state, and then indeed the truly divide, if you like, this, this division between church and state. And what is it about? It's not only to avoid church influence and state, it's to avoid the state messing around with the churches. And we're practical on this show as we take back America. We're not going to lie to you. The Supreme Court, it leans 6-3 conservative. We know where this case is going to go. So I guess as we get out of here, Professor K, what do we do? How important will this be when this precedent is set? State dollars, which, you know, it, it could end up being federal dollars at some point when that suit comes in. When this happens and those dollars go to these, these schools, I mean, what do we do? Well, it is hard to change the minds of Supreme Court justices. So all I can tell you is, People really have to vote oppositionally. You know, we're in a, in a situation where it's going to take years to dig ourselves out of the hole that conservatives are placing us in, in terms of restoring a truly democratic republic. So yes, be angry, be upset, and be prepared to get organized to make sure that we can elect people to office who can reassert the separation of church and state, reassert the freedom to choose, reassert workers' rights, reassert fundamentally voters' rights. I mean, I'm pushing all these things because I'm very pessimistic about this next year. So it is absolutely essential we not stay away from the polls. Absolutely essential. I mean, do y'all want to see a Speaker of the House, Donald Trump? That's these games that they're playing, and it's on the table. That's a real thing. That's a real scenario. That could Let us hope the Democrats get around to choosing a new Speaker of the House, a more progressive one, if they hold on to the House. But let us also make sure that the Republicans do not get to name a Speaker of the House, who I understand would be Kevin McCarthy. You know this better than I do. The Speaker doesn't have to be a, a sitting member of Congress. You know, I'll do a sidebar to get us out of here. There was a picture on Twitter the other day. I guess it made its rounds in all the social media. That was Boebert's family, I guess. You know, Laura Boebert with her kids, you know, wielding, was it like, looked to me like they were assault weapons. And I looked at that and I thought, oh my God, you know, I, I just thought, what have we become? What have we become? What have we come to? And then I noticed that one of her sons had a Green Bay Packers sweatshirt on. So I thought, well, what can I make of this? So I tweeted, let's have a kind of ironic twist here. Let, let's, take a, let's take a better view of this picture somehow. I said, just think about it. The Bobert family is endorsing socialism. The Green Bay Packers, the fan-owned team. Laura Bobert, I don't know if you saw my tweet. Please deck out your whole family in Green Bay Packers sweatshirts. Let them all endorse, as the New York Times sports writer wrote, the fact that socialism is alive and well in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Professor Harvey K., where can these folks find you on the internet? Only on Twitter, at Harvey J.K. H-A-R-V-E-Y-J-K-A-Y-E. And they should know that this is just the first quarter, we might say, of this enterprise, Take Back America. Because the fight continues, my brother. Professor K., until next week. Love you, brother. Love you.